how we read the Bible makes a huge difference in our experience with, with God and in our experience with one another. Welcome to the Bible Journeys podcast. Your traveling companion is Ed Dickerson, an author, teacher, and scholar. He holds a master's degree in religious education from Andrews University. As you explore together, you'll learn tools and techniques that illuminate scripture, renew your faith, and brighten your journey. Well, thank you for joining me for this first episode in my podcast, the Bible Journeys podcast. Episode one is about reading the Bible as it was meant to be read. This may not sound like a big deal, except that it makes all the difference. And it's a question that Jesus actually asked when uh, someone came to him and wanted to know how he could have eternal life. He said, what is it written in the law? How do you read it? How we read the Bible makes a huge difference in our experience with, with God and in our experience with one another. So that's what we're going to start looking at. Anyone can do it. The Bible is not written for scholars. It was written for ordinary people. And today, with the resources we all have available on the Internet and other places, uh, there's no reason we can't find out what we need to know. Beyond that, so much information has been gathered about the Bible in the last 50 years. We probably know a great deal more about Bible times than people did even 500 years afterwards. 500 years just so close to it, relatively speaking. We're 2,000 years away, and yet we have so much information. So that's the good news. You can read the Bible as it was meant to be read. Now, uh, you may wonder uh, how, I, how I know this. We're going to talk about this. Uh, first, I want to talk about maps, reading maps. The reason is that if we talk about reading the Bible, everyone has certain things built in, and they don't realize what's, what's going on. I know that because I was that way for many years. Now, I have loved maps since I was very young, uh, and that was a long time ago. It used to be that uh, every service station, any place you could buy gas, that you could get a road map. They, they were free. You could just go pick one up. And I don't know when I started collecting them, but I know that by seven years of age, I had an interesting collection. I had already quite a few maps. I loved to look at them and see the faraway places. And then uh, these were, of course, just from state to state. And then I found a world map. And if you're like me, and most people do, the first world map they see is something called the Mercator Projection. Uh, and what's interesting about that is the Mercator projection, you have Greenland, which is this great landmass that hovers just off of Canada. And then you have Antarctica, which lines the entire bottom of the map. And you think, how big a place must that be? There's a problem with that. The farther you get from the equator, the more the landmass shapes and sizes are distorted. So the map is telling you the truth, kind of, but it doesn't tell you the whole truth. But the Mercator map isn't 
useless. Now, you know, you can say that Greenland was this huge mass, and yet if we have maps that compare them for actual size, we see that Greenland is about a third or the fourth the size of Australia. It's much, much smaller than it appears on the Mercator projection. And the same is true with Antarctica. It's a large landmass, but it's not much larger than the United States plus uh, Alaska, for example. It probably is smaller than the landmass of Canada. And yet it looks so large because these two areas, Greenland and Antarctica, are so far from the equator. So they are distorted. So you may ask yourself, well, then what good is the Mercator projection? Why is it worth anything at all? And the answer is very simple. Now, if I read the Mercator projection, we just talked about this, if I read for the size and shape of land masses, I'm going to be deceived. If I read it looking for the length of a river, the chances are it's not going to be very close unless that river is right along the equator somewhere. So that's not going to help me. But what does help me is if I put a line, draw a line from two points, between two points and any place in, in the, on the Mercator projection, it gives me a true compass bearing. And that's why the Mercator projection is still in use, despite its distortions. And that's because Mercator, when he brought out this projection, in Latin he had a sentence which said, a new and augmented description of Earth corrected for the use of sailors. He wrote, he produced the Mercator projection so that sailors at sea could know which, which compass bearing was the right one to reach their destination. And for that reason, it's still used in naval charts, for example. Almost anything for surface uh, navigation, uh, you want to have Mercator projection. Yes, in one way, it distorts things, but in another way, it's very true. And the same thing can be true of Scripture. When we read Scripture a in one way, it's true, and it leads us to a true bearing to Jesus and to salvation. If we read it in another way, certain things become distorted, and we see this all the time. So then the question is, well, how does it meant to be read, and how do I know? What makes me think that I know, and what makes me think that you don't read it the right way? Well, the real question is, how can you know for yourself how to read the Bible so that you have a useful and productive spiritual life? And the reason I know is because for many years I didn't read it the right way. You know, we learn by how we see others do it, pastors, teachers, parents, devotional books, and almost none of them ever read the Bible the way it was intended to be read. And there's a reason we look for the Bible for instruction. Well, the Bible's not an instruction manual. It can tell you how to live, but it isn't an instruction manual. We should be thankful for that because have you ever read an instruction manual? They're boring. They're terribly boring. The Bible's anything but. Uh, and it's not, it's not an advice thing. There are all of these problems. The Bible is not what we think it is, what we learned by habit to do. So uh, I didn't. So, you know, what fueled my uh, understanding? Well, one thing is recognize that Bible authors were active and not passive. Now, 
I believe in the inspiration of the word, but that doesn't mean that it was uh, God whispering in the uh, ear of the prophet. That's what I used to think, is that the, an angel or God was whispering in the ear of the prophet who'd write something down, more whispering, he'd write more down. And someone said that God doesn't use people the way he, we use word processors. He didn't use the prophets that way. The prophets were active. And we know this because John, for example, in his gospel tells us that he selected uh, seven signs, only seven uh, out of all the miracles Jesus uh, performed because they, they served the purpose of John in writing his gospel. And so how do we know how the Bible was meant to be read? We can see how it was written. That gives us a big clue. Well, first of all, let's take a look and begin at the beginning. 75 to 80% of the Bible, we're told, consists of stories. Now, we love stories. That's why books and movies and other things, YouTube, they, they, we can't get enough of stories. Stories are powerful. So let's see. Let's look at it. Uh, psychologists tell us that stories are the way we understand and even construct our understanding of reality. It's how we interact with reality. We see ourselves as part of a story. So let's look at it. Genesis 1, you have the creation story. It is a story about how God created the earth. That's Genesis 1, the story of the creation of this, we would call it a planet. Genesis 2 shows how humankind is placed on the earth and their function on the earth. They are collaborators with God. They are, uh, we would call them vice regents, if that term still applies. And so that's a story. In Genesis 3, we have the fall. Now there's a story. How sin came into the earth and death with it. And that whole process. Uh, Genesis 4 has three intertwined stories. Very fascinating. The, um, the birth of Cain and Abel. And the first murder. Fratricide. Uh, the, the line of Cain, that is his descendants or six or seven generations, depending on how you count them. And it comes to a culmination, in a way, with Lamech, who is the first polygamist and a proud murderer. Uh, Lamech claims to be better than God because he provides for himself two wives, and he kills a young man simply for wounding him. This is in his, what he declares to his wives. So Genesis 4 is these three intertwined stories. They show you how Cain's sin and his not being punished for it uh, has redounded down into, the, into history. Genesis 5 is genealogy from Adam to Seth, uh, through Seth to Noah. Now, genealogies are things we usually glaze over. My mother taught school for many years, and she talked about a little boy who was learning to read, and he was reading the Bible, and he came to the begats, as they call them, the genealogy. And he struggled with the names. Well, like, who doesn't? The names can be very difficult for English-speaking uh, tongues and ears. And she said, when you come to that word, just skip it. Because she knew that those were words he was going to have to know very often. And uh, he would gain more proficiency by reading the words he did understand. And uh, she went on and helped another student, came back, and she heard him reading. Skip it, begat, skip it, the son of skip it, and so forth. Well... <laughs> 
we often do the same thing, don't we? We see the genealogy and we kind of skip it. But genealogies are, in fact, stories. And we have to learn to read them. We'll do that in a future podcast. But right now, just know that they're stories. So, and then we come to uh, Genesis 6. And that is the epic story of the flood. It goes on for a number of chapters. And there are so, small stories within that. But the big story is the flood. So, now let's just look at what we have here. In the first uh, six, well, it says Genesis 6 through 9. That's where the flood story is. So in the first nine chapters of Genesis, we have the creation, humanity's place on the earth, that's two, the fall, three, the uh, three intertwined stories of Genesis 4, so that's six, Genesis 5, a genealogy through Seth to Noah, that's seven, and Genesis 6 through 9 is the giant story of the flood. That's eight stories in a row linked to one another. That's the point. It's story. And when we approach the creation or the flood as simply accounts that are um, scientific or otherwise, we mistake it. Now, I'm not saying the Bible is wrong. Don't get me wrong. What I'm saying is the authors of the Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit, guided in their selection, but they were not, again, just word processes. They were, they were active in, in doing this work. They, they were given a message from God. Imagine if you were given a message from God, wouldn't you feel the burden to, to be as accurate and be as communicative as possible? So did they in terms of their own culture. And so that's the thing we need to understand. But they put these together as stories. And when we read them as stories, as they expected their audience to understand them, then we'll get somewhere. We'll understand it. And one of the problems is that we look at the Bible as a source of morality. Of course it is. It tells us how to live, I would say, in the New Testament, especially kingdom life. Jesus talks about the kingdom. The problem is that when we pull the morality, and this is what we do all the time, and I taught, you know, for many, many, many years. And one of the things you find is that if you try to teach the Bible simply as morality, and you take the morality out of the story and just make it into a series of rules, Here's what's something that happens. That William Kirkpatrick wrote a wonderful book called Why Johnny Can't Tell Right from Wrong. It's now 30 years old, but it was an excellent book. And he said morality needs to be set within a storied vision. To remain morality, conceived of as rule-keeping, this is the way I thought of it, or as refraining from wrongdoing, again, that's pretty much what I thought about it, it never works for long. Instead, it withers into something cold and cautious and all too often into self-righteousness. That's the whole thing, isn't it? As we make the Bible into a set of rules, into a law, we become legalists. It's just the nature of human beings. Instructions and rules quickly devolve into formulas. Rules and legalism. That's it. We just, we, we do that. Theology becomes impersonal. It's intellectual and sterile. It doesn't have anything to do with our real lives. Faith becomes knowledge, which, by the way, they're quite different because we, we're told that we live by faith, not by sight. 
So we live by believing and trusting in God, not by knowing certain things. And eventually, either certainty or cynicism. Refining, <laughs> refraining from wrongdoing becomes fearful, reactive, and condemnatory. That's wrong. That's wrong. Don't do that. That's wrong. And yet we find in Scripture situations where characters in the stories sometimes act one way and another time act in a completely different way, and God approves of both because they are within the context of the story, what's happening. Set in a story, it remains dynamic, alive, and empowering. And as we go through these studies, as we go through the podcast, and we talk about learning to read the Bible as it was meant to be read, we'll do other topics as well. But right now, I want to start with that most fundamental thing. As we go through this, we'll discover how dynamic and empowering Scripture can be. But we have to read it as it was intended to be read. To understand the message God intends for us to in Scripture, intends for us in Scripture, to understand how to live ethically in a broken world, we must read it as it was intended to be read. We must read it as story. Will we learn rules and get advice and morality? Yes, all of that will come, but it will come as naturally as uh, picking berries, for example. The, the, the berries are a part of the process of the plant, and we'll see this as it grows and develops in Scripture. So, understanding that reading the Bible as it's meant to be read is an incredibly dynamic experience. Now, I've talked about, we're going to talk about the lessons. The, the lessons that we have are about the four, the, the three angels' messages. Sorry, three angels' messages. And uh, if you're going to read the Bible as it's meant to be read, one of the problems, if you look at the lessons, the first four lessons, which are now behind us, but it's important to understand. First of all, they say read chapter 12. Well, that's a good idea. That's a real good idea. But it turns out that they only ask for two or three verses, maybe four from Revelation 13. They skip over it entirely. Then they jump to interpreting 14, and eventually they'll go to some other things. But there's no sense that there's a narrative in Revelation. And let me assure you, I've taught Revelation on three continents and to many, many different audiences. Revelation is a narrative. It is a story. It's a very bizarre story in some ways. There's a lot of strange things that we see and hear in that story. But it is a narrative. It is a story, and we can understand it better. So if you really want to understand these three angels' messages, you need to read the Bible, the book of Revelation, as it was intended to be read. Now, how do I know again? Well, John tells us that he expects his audience to understand it in verse 3 of the chapter 1, and then he lays it out in a series of stories. There are the stories of the seven uh, lampstands, the seven churches, the story of the seven uh, seals, the seven trumpets, the seven plagues, all of these are stories that are interlinked with one another. And when we sometimes, when we lose the narrative, and this is going to be definitely true in this section of Revelation, we're going to lose the narrative and we're going to make mistakes because we're viewing every chapter as its own thing, like a, a 
they call it a post hole or a silo. Everything's just there. We don't see that there's a horizontal thing, that there's a, this silo is related to that silo. And in fact, there's a, there's a way of looking at it horizontally instead and seeing a continuous action and a development within the book. So first of all, we recognize that in Revelation 11, 15 through 19 is the end of the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet sounds, and then the Ark of the Covenant is seen. And the furniture of, of the sanctuary uh, is all in Revelation with, perha with perhaps the exception of the labor. I say perhaps. We won't get into that because that's not for these, uh, these lessons. Nevertheless, the Ark of the Covenant is seen. And this tells us that the narrative is shifting from the historical period from the time of John to the very last days because the Ark of the Covenant is seen here. The only time in the liturgical year of Israel, the only time the Ark of the Covenant is seen is on the Day of Atonement, which they see as foreshadowing the end of all things. Uh, the Jews see it that way. And so that's what's definitely happening here. John is telling us in Revelation that at the end of chapter 11, we have, we've left the sort of historical period from his day until the end of time and have begun the events of the last days. And that's where Revelation, the next chapter is 12. The next verse is chapter 12. So 12 through 14 is essentially a prologue to the plagues. Now, I'm not minimizing 14. 14 is a pivotal chapter. But you need to understand that it's 12 through 14 because the plagues take place in 15 and 16. And the uh, chapter 12 begins with the, with the war in heaven and the, the woman with the 12 stars. And, the, and she's one of the great signs, and so is the, uh, the dragon. And they're going to play out against each other for a while here in the book of Revelation. So 12 through 14 shows the events that lead up to the seven last plagues the forces. Uh, and then Revelation 15 through 16 is the seven last plagues. Uh, and again, that's all part and parcel of this. In Revelation 17 and 18, we have the destruction of Babylon. That's why it's, by the way, extremely important to read Revelation 12 and 13, because you want to understand what's happening in 15 through 18. And they are going to get there. They're going to reference this. You want to understand those things. And therefore, you want to understand the, four, the three angels' messages, which are in the middle of all this. You don't want to understand those unless you understand that there's a narrative that extends from the beginning of chapter 12, at least through 18. I would prefer to go to 19 and 20 because that's explaining the judgment. Well, the seven last plagues come. They are judgments. But they are, then, then there is a judgment at the end of that. So I would prefer, if I'm going to prepare lessons for this, I'm going to prepare even to understand this, I would read Revelation 12 through 20 carefully. And, you know, there are going to be questions about it. I'd make notes of those and try to understand the narrative that's taking place. Get the plot, okay? Then Revelation 21 and 22, the New Jerusalem. You can go there or not, but I think uh, you know, it's useful. But certainly 12 through 20, 12 through 18 at an absolute minimum. Otherwise, you're not going to understand this. And one of the problems is 
that you'll see in these lessons, they are not doing anything like that. They're not taking these things in order uh, because they have another agenda. And I say this with respect, but they're not really studying the three angels' messages. They're really studying a series of doctrines which they want to link to those things. Whether or not they link and are appropriately in the text is a different question. I'm not saying they're not. I'm saying to know whether or not these are appropriate, you need to certainly understand the uh, narrative in these chapters, and it then is therefore useful also to look and see if there are references inside the text of Revelation that lead to these other doctrines. And not just notionally there, because then Revelation is full of echoes and allusions and references. It never quotes the Old Testament exactly, but it's full of Old Testament imagery. Old Testament stories are echoed and are re, uh, re-articulated in some ways. So if you're going to read the Bible as it was intended, you want to read about the New Jerusalem. I'm sorry, you need to read these, these whole things from, from 12 through 20. Uh, and New Jerusalem isn't a bad idea because New Jerusalem is Eden restored in, very, in a very real way. That's applying these things, applying the skills that you have already learned. Read it as it was intended to be written. It's written as a narrative. Uh, as seven letters to seven churches, he expects them to understand it. He says that in, in verse 3 of chapter 1, because he says they should heed it. You cannot heed what you cannot understand. But the other thing is, to understand the three angels' messages, we must read it as it was intended to be read as a story. And a story, to be consistent, not only has an author, it has to have an audience. I've published over 100 articles in various publications. And I can tell you that if I don't write for an audience, a particular audience, my work will be rejected because it won't be clear and focused. It has to be focused on an audience. And that audience is very different in some cases. Uh, If I write for uh, North America, I write one way. If I write for Britain which and UK and Europe, which I've done, you write in different ways depending upon who you expect to be reading this. And that really matters. And the same thing is true of the Bible. And we'll see more of that in the next episode. But until then, start your own Bible journey. I suggest you read Revelation 12 through 20 and read it in one sitting and try to get a general impression of what's going on here. And maybe make notes on the narrative threads, the, the pieces of the story that are They go so far and then appear to stop, and maybe they pick up again, because that does happen here. And embark on your own journey. Begin reading the Bible as it was meant to be. Will you get it all right? Nobody ever gets it all right. The Word is greater than any of us. But it will be a new experience, and you may find that you discover things, even at this early point, that you never expected. You find treasures in Scripture. So, go out and explore it for yourself. If you've gained something from this discussion, please be sure to share it with someone. 
because those who join our Bible journeys here can become our traveling companions for eternity.